This is Home on the Dot, the podcast about the meaning of home in Singapore, as told through the lives of students from the National University of Singapore. I'm Chris McMorrin. I spent the last two weeks cleaning closets and packing boxes, preparing to move to an apartment half the size of our current place. While it was cathartic during the first few days to say goodbye to old clothes and chipped plates, the process has stretched out longer than expected, leading to sleepless nights and concerns about everything I have to leave behind. Of course, I don't just mean lovingly worn t-shirts. Moving also means leaving behind neighbors that have become close friends. When I began teaching about home at NUS, I was surprised to learn that most of my students have moved at least once in their short lives. This may not sound unusual. In fact, I moved house at least six times before university, but that was not normal among my classmates in Greenfield, Iowa. I was surprised by my students because I thought most homeowners in Singapore followed the model we introduced in episode 9 of season 3, called the home game. In that model, a young couple marries and moves into their new HDB flat. Then they raise kids who grow up in this flat before they too marry and move into their own new flat. Contrary to this model, I've come to discover that Singapore is a country constantly on the move. Those who can afford to do so are moving up the housing ladder, from HDB to condo to house, or what is known locally as landed property. Those who cannot afford to climb the housing ladder, especially those in subsidized rental flats, may also be on the move, but not by choice. HDB estates that have grown old are often demolished, forcing all residents to relocate. In this episode of Home on the Dot, we explore this kind of relocation through the case of Dakota Crescent, an HDB estate demolished beginning in 2020. When does relocation become dislocation? And how do Singapore's young people learn about and support the relocation of society's most vulnerable? Stay tuned. Singapore is a nation of neighborhoods. Beyond the gleaming towers of the Central Business District and architectural icons like the Marina Bay Sands Hotel, Singapore is full of neighborhoods defined less by political boundaries and more by a train station or bus terminal and everything that surrounds it. Shopping malls, food centers, schools, religious institutions, and parks. One of my favorite neighborhoods is Dakota. Blending seamlessly into Mountbatten and Geelong, in many ways there's nothing unusual about Dakota. It has a school, Broderick Secondary School, and it has a handful of HDB estates and private condos. It also happens to have an excellent hawker center, Old Airport Road Food Center. I guess I like Dakota because of its quiet path along the Geelong River. Plus, I'm drawn to it because of its curious name. I mean, what is a Native American name connected to two U.S. states doing in Singapore? This question is part of the reason I was motivated to visit the neighborhood in 2019 when a colleague from NUS, Dr. Ong Yiching, recommended I take a tour of Dakota Crescent. She had just been there with students for her economics course. She told me that Dakota Crescent was about to be demolished erasing a historical landmark. Plus, unlike HDB owners who get a lot of attention, most residents forced to vacate Dakota Crescent were low-income or no-income renters who are often hidden in Singapore. What better story for the podcast? So a small team from Home on the Dot met in front of an abandoned housing block at Dakota Crescent on a Saturday in December 2019. It would be our last field piece before COVID-19 arrived. Our guide was Sai Yin Zhou, who asked us to call him Joe. Joe is director of Citizen Adventures, a group that gives walking tours of stigmatized neighborhoods like Dakota and Geelong. Joe hopes to destigmatize these places and the people living there. 
a noble aim that has led to serious accolades, including a nomination for Singaporean of the Year by the Straits Times newspaper in 2020. But on that Saturday in 2019, I thought he was just going to tell us about these buildings about to be torn down. I'll let my co-producer Wei Yun take it from here. We started the tour beneath a shady canopy of mature trees in front of a handful of unique butterfly-shaped seven-story housing blocks. Joe shared the long history of the neighbourhood, including the airport that used to be across the road, the construction of housing blocks by the Singapore Improvement Trust in 1958, and the relocation of thousands of residents made homeless by fires in 1958 and 1959. The Singapore Improvement Trust was the precursor to the HDB, or Housing Development Board, a frequent subject on Home on the Dot. HDB controls most elements of the public housing scheme, including estate planning, flat allocation, and decommissioning. HDB not only sells flats, but also rents flats to those who cannot afford to purchase. Indeed, despite many subsidies available to buy a new flat, some Singaporeans simply can't afford it. So public rental flats are highly subsidized by the government, meaning even the poorest residents can have a safe, clean place to live for less than $50 a month. As we walked around the buildings, fully vacated by 2017, we spotted shattered windows and abandoned rental bikes. Some doors were still plastered with religious stickers, objects that reminded us that this abandoned place had once been lived in and brimming with activity. Our tour included a stop at the dove-shaped playground, cousin of the iconic dragon playground in Topayo, and designed by the same artist, Mr. Ko Yangi. In 2014, the government announced plans to redevelop Dakota Crescent due to its prime location near the Central Business District and East Coast Park. This announcement set off concerns by both architectural historians worried about the loss of these unique buildings and people like Joe who worried about the impacts of relocation on residents, many of whom were already economically marginalised. HDB redevelopment feels inevitable in Singapore, where neighbourhoods constantly change. In the past 10 years, two condos, one HDB estate, and at least a dozen buildings at NUS have been built within 10 minutes of my front door, completely reshaping my neighborhood. And another nearby HDB estate, West Coast Park View, is nearly complete. In other words, Singapore residents are used to the constant churn of housing stock. But that doesn't make relocation any easier, especially when it's not by choice. When an aging HDB block is slated for teardown, current owners get first priority to purchase a new flat with a fresh 99-year lease. They can also apply for housing grants worth tens of thousands of dollars. Renters at Dakota Crescent hoping to purchase a new HDB home were offered a $15,000 relocation grant on top of other housing subsidies. And for those who could still not afford to buy, the government offered new rental flats in nearby Cassia Crescent or other neighborhoods plus $1,000 to help with moving costs. News of the government's redevelopment plans reached residents in different ways. While they received an official letter informing them of the relocation deadline, some are illiterate, while others have poor vision and cannot read well. Instead, their neighbours and strangers broke the news to them. Despite government support, some ex-residents of Dakota Crescent still face challenges when it came to settling into their new homes due to their age, health conditions, and limited finances. Most could not afford to buy new HDB homes and had no choice but to move to rental flats. Although they were fortunate not to be left homeless, the transition was not easy for some. I must admit, 
I joined the Dakota Crescent Tour to see the historically significant HDB blocks before they were gone. Inspired by the work of Stephen Cairns and Jane M. Jacobs and their book, All Buildings Must Die, I visited Dakota hoping to understand something new about the death of HDB homes. But Joe made it painfully clear what else dies when buildings do. The ties that bind neighbors and the comfort of a place that has been lived in for a long time. Joe had spent countless hours helping Dakota Crescent residents negotiate the housing bureaucracy, pack their things, and discard what wouldn't fit in their new flats. Even after they moved, he was still helping them settle in, explaining government documents, informing them how to collect benefits, checking in on their well-being. In a sense, he was trying to reproduce the old neighborhood, recreating the sense of community they had lost. Our tour gave me new insights into Singapore's young people whose compassion for those in less privileged positions and selfless dedication to the well-being of others took me by surprise. Our producer Wei Yun caught up with one of those people. After my tour in Dakota Crescent, I wanted to learn more about the volunteers who devote their time and energy to helping residents like those in Dakota Crescent relocate. I began by speaking to Lim Jingzhou, who co-founded Kasia Resettlement Team in 2017, a volunteer group that regularly visits the residents of Block 52 Kasia Crescent the new home of many former residents of Dakota Crescent. As he helped some of the residents pack up their homes, he noticed how physically and emotionally taxing it was to go through the process of sorting and packing decades of one's life. Some residents might have to procure an entirely new set of furniture as they move to their new homes. It could be because their previous home might have been infested with, say, bedbugs. And if the resident has a lot of things to move, then you might require additional transportation. If the resident has additional health conditions and needs which render them unable to pack for themselves, then they will need to engage a packer. These costs do add up. What made the relocation process even more difficult for some was that their new rental flats were significantly smaller than those in Dakota Crescent. We like to call this sort of a double downgrade. So what happens is that the flats in newer housing estates are by nature already smaller in design. The second downgrade is that for some of these residents, they had to downgrade from a three-room rental flat to a two-room rental flat, or even a three-room to a one-room. It's not just a simple matter of how much space I have in my home, but how many things can I keep? Do I have enough space to cook now? Of course, these issues are not unique to Cassia Crescent or rental flats. Over the past few decades, Singapore's public housing stock has gotten both taller and smaller. The average height of HDB blocks has increased, with some new towers today reaching 40 storeys, unlike the 7 storeys at Dakota Crescent. At the same time, the average area of an HDB flat has decreased. Similar shrinkage has occurred in the private rental market, with some new studio apartments arriving at less than 400 square feet. Dakota Crescent was built in the late 1950s, before Singapore even became a country, so it's not surprising that the rooms were more spacious and the estate itself was less densely packed than estates being built today. But because they had become used to these conditions, the move from Dakota Crescent to Cassia Crescent has not been without stress. Relocation has also made it harder for some ex-residents to access neighbourhood services. In terms of the geography, Dakota Crescent is only a street away from all the different amenities that residents would require, from the wet market to the coffee shops to the hawker centre to the supermarket to the ATM, so on and so forth. It's around maximum a 5 to 10 minutes walk, even for a senior with poor mobility. 
Whereas Cassia Crescent, despite it being within the same region as Dakota Crescent, it's proving to be a difficult distance for some seniors. For some of them, now the distance has increased and the time taken to travel to the entire stretch of amenities could be anywhere between 15 minutes to half an hour. And to some of them, they completely cannot make the journey anymore. We experienced this firsthand on our tour with Joe. We crossed the street from Dakota Crescent to the Old Airport Road Food Centre for a break and a fruit juice. Then we walked to the other side of the hawker towards Cassia Crescent. Cars sped by us and the loud construction noises made it hard to concentrate. If crossing the road felt dangerous to me as a young, able-bodied person, I wonder how an elderly person with poor mobility or vision could cross the road safely. So we are going to walk from the hawker to Cassia. Just now we walked from Dakota to Hawker. It was across the road, essentially. Uh, so you notice the distance, of that being the biggest difference, but the mobility in terms of the type of infrastructure and even things like the traffic, things like ramps, shelter walkways, uh, handicap-friendly access. So uh, I actually live uh, next door from Cassia. Uh, after I had my accident, I was wheelchair-bound for a week. I never crossed the road on this side because it was too hectic. So it really like helped me see and even when I was crutches I couldn't cross the road in time and the cars had to stop. So uh, these are the perspectives that one also see from the shoes of an elderly. Ex-residents of Dakota Crescent also lost a sense of community. They could not request flats near their previous neighbours, so they were suddenly separated from people they had lived next to for decades. Residents needed to get used to unfamiliar faces in the corridors and rebuild their social support systems. Dakota Crescent was old and not everything worked. The drains would clog and the lifts were often unreliable. But it was home. Before they moved out, some residents even gave guided tours around the estate to members of the public. Perhaps this was their way of bidding farewell. Despite the difficulties of moving out, there are upsides to relocation. Ex-residents who moved into newer rental flats in Cassia Crescent now enjoy cleaner environments with more functional infrastructure. Some younger ex-residents became HDB homeowners, fulfilling a housing aspiration shared by many Singaporeans. We have spent a fair amount of time discussing about the different issues and challenges that the residents have faced. But the truth is that for some residents, the relocation might even be a happy thing for them. In the old estates, the lifts will only stop on odd levels, and the lifts were old and often broke down. And that caused a big problem, especially for seniors who are unable to cope with stairs. So in the new flat, we have new lifts and we have a large number of them to serve the entire block. For some residents, it was also a new environment that they enjoyed. So there were also upsides to moving to a new estate. While these ex-residents might have lost their social networks after moving out of Dakota Crescent, Tsingzhou's Kasia Resettlement Team shows that a community need not be place-based. The team's volunteers from across Singapore forged a new social support system with the residents living at Block 52 Cassia Crescent. These volunteers are now treated like friends and family. The community we work with is very resilient. They find their own ways to adapt, sometimes by themselves, sometimes with the support of their neighbours and friends in the community. And sometimes we try to step in and see how we can also support the process of adaptation. The decision to redevelop Dakota Crescent comes with trade-offs. While some saw the benefits of redeveloping a run-down and underutilized neighborhood, others wanted to keep a part of our public housing history intact. 
it is difficult to measure what is lost through redevelopment where not all trade-offs can be quantified. How do you put a price on the value of heritage? How do we measure the sense of belongingness that the residents of Dakota Crescent shared? How do we value the sense of home that a community builds over time? For Tsingzhou, the fact that Dakota Crescent's redevelopment involved public rental tenants, an economically and socially marginalised community, makes such question even more difficult to resolve. From the outside, Singapore may not seem like a country with much social and economic inequality. In fact, even from the inside, inequality may be invisible to many people, including NUS students. But the rising costs of housing have recently put inequality front and center in the news. Price increases benefit current homeowners, but they often squeeze renters and the poor out of prime areas like Dakota, further marginalizing a vulnerable population. To say that rental flat residents are marginalized actually underestimates how invisible they are in Singapore. This is something Dr. Ong Yi-Ching, my NUS colleague who works in the Department of Economics, knows firsthand. When teaching about economic inequality, she's sometimes shocked at how little her students know about inequality in their own backyards. So she's included visits to Dakota to open their eyes. So in our class, a lot of it is reading empirical papers, right? Looking at different theories, economic theories of uh, income inequality or discrimination or power, stuff like that. And I think it's important for students to realize what is going on in their own backyard, right? Because each of us, we have our own set of lived experiences. We have our own social circles. And if we don't talk to people outside our social circles, right, we're not going to be aware that mm. these problems exist. Mm. So I don't actually blame the students for that, right? Because for all of us, really, you know, it's what we are exposed to and what we choose to expose ourselves. So for Dakota, it's really like, here, this is a part of Singapore that you might not have known about. And let's learn about the lives of people who might be different from us or from you, right? And obviously, I'm not saying that all students are the same, you know, students are also coming from a, a range of backgrounds. Uh, but I think a lot of our students are probably coming from the middle income, upper middle, middle income upper middle, sphere, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So... So they have no exposure, really. Yeah, so I think what was really funny, so you know in high school and JC, they have this, um, com some community involvement project thing, right, they, did, they do. And I've heard from students that when they did their community involvement project and they went to a, a rental housing, mm -hmm. they did not even know there was rental housing. Oh, really? Yeah. They went that many years, what, 15, 16 years of their lives without even knowing... No, 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 yeah, 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 but also the fact that when they did their community involvement project, I don't know, they're like 16, 17, 18 years old at that mm -hmm. point, right? And they did something that's at a rental housing. And they did not know there was rental housing until we went to Dakota. Wow. And they're like, wait a minute, that thing that I did like three, four years ago, yeah. there was rental housing. <laughs> Oh, they didn't know that it was rental housing at the time. Obviously. Yeah, isn't it crazy? It hadn't been pointed out that that was... I don't know. I think I'm guessing that it was <sighs> mentioned, but maybe it didn't like sink through to their consciousness, right? right? They just thought right. that, oh, these people don't have a lot of money. They did, right. did not think that, oh, these people are renting. Right. Yeah, so... And to be fair, I mean, I think, you know, when they enter college, you know, as 18, 19-year-olds, like, what do we expect them to know, right? Um, you know, we're, we're, most of us have lived our lives in a bubble up to that point. Sure. Um, but by the time they're in college, and for most of them, they're almost graduating, 
And I think it's it's time to wake up and smell the roses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Life is really not very easy for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy, it's super easy for us to forget that, right? Because we're so consumed with our own little struggles and our own little problems and like, oh, I need to get an A in this class and why is this professor so mean to me, <laughs> right? Uh, we forget that some people are dealing with you know physical financial mental family mm-hmm. social mm-hmm. emotional like whatever you name it right right i mean i think it's also a, a nice setting because it's a little bit different from other neighborhoods in singapore so i think it's a nice space for them to think about some very abstract concepts or theories mm-hmm. that we've learned in class and how these theories or concepts might apply or might not apply and why Dr. Ong takes her students to Dakota to teach about social justice and inequality in Singapore. But does this place and the reality of Singapore's marginalized renters really speak to Singapore's young people? Regular listeners of Home on the Dot know our episodes often have a deep personal connection for one of the producers. Indeed, Wei Yun's anxiety about her own delays in achieving housing independence is the glue holding together her most recent episode, The Home Game. In the case of Dakota Crescent, I invited some producers hoping to spark a personal connection for one of them. But it turns out Wei-Yoon had a connection of her own. She had visited two years before, and she was eager to experience Dakota Crescent in a new light. In 2017, when residents were moving out, the estate began to attract ruins hunters, folks who wanted to photograph or be photographed with old buildings before they're torn down. Wei-Yoon accompanied a friend on just such a hunt. It made her feel uncomfortable at the time, but she couldn't quite articulate why. Joining the tour and co-producing this episode offered Wei-Yoon an opportunity to reset her relationship with the place before it was gone. We sat down in July 2021 to discuss how her perspective on this episode had changed since her first trip with her friend to Dakota Crescent, and how our tour had inspired her to engage in volunteer work with other rental flat residents. So when you invited me on a tour, I was like, okay, maybe this is, maybe having someone explain to me the historical significance behind these buildings, then I'll be able to appreciate it more. Right. 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 So I did, you know, accept the invite to go on a tour because I wanted to get to know the place a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe understand why I felt so uncomfortable. So did you get some resolution at the end of the tour? Did it make you feel not as creepy in the space or did you still have those feelings when we went the tour? Not as creepy because now I understand. Mm. But it, it left me wanting, like even after the tour, I just felt like it was not enough, you know. So yeah. to me, the, the question then became, so what, give, what gives a place its meaning, mm. right? Especially for somebody who hasn't lived in that place yet. And to me, it's the... It's, getting to know the people who have lived in a place, right? So to me, I just feel like places, it's a space unless people lived in it and make something out of it. Mm. Which is why I wanted the podcast to be so people-centric or the stories to be centered on the residents, ex-residents of Dakota Crescent. I didn't want to talk about how nice the building was or the architectural significance of it, which is important. Mm. But to me, just personally, I, f- I felt most connected uh, learning about the people who had lived there, which is why when I told you I read the book, They Told Us to Move. What, it was, it's called They Told Us to Move? Yes, the who, book who is wrote called, it? It was written by um, 
the Cassia resettlement team, their volunteers as well as... So they transcribed the interviews with the residents, ex-residents of Dakota Crescent, and they also invited academics to uh, give their opinions on on this issue of relocation. Mm, mm, mm. So reading the book, I've never, I've never met any of these like residents personally, but reading the book and reading through their interviews, that was that was when I really understood what the place meant to them mm. and what moving away meant to them. It was a very special feeling because I don't know any of these people, but somehow I just felt so connected um, to them just through the words, you know, that they say. And um, like, okay, maybe I'm being a bit dramatic, but it's like you can feel their sense of loss. Like, even though you've, ne- you've, you've never lived in Dakota Crescent, I've not even relocated before. So it's like, how do what do I know about losing a home, right? But it's through that words that you understand that you have a vicarious, vicarious experience of it. So I think the next time, or not the next time, the first time I experience moving home is when I move out mm-hmm. of my current uh, flat with my parents. But I'll be, I think I'll be overwhelmed with the joy of my first home and not feel like oh, I'm so sad, I'm moving out of my parents' home. Yeah, but it's different when you get to choose. Yes. I mean, that's the thing about Dakota Crescent is the people didn't get to choose. They they told us, that's the title of the book, yes, right? Yes, they told, they us, told to us to move. Right. So it'll be different when you're independent and you're financially independent and you can choose to move your parents uh, out of your parents' house. Yeah. That'll be a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were on the tour and afterwards you interviewed someone who works with these people in their resettlement. Mm-hmm. And you've told me that in the meantime, you've started to volunteer with a different group of people in a different neighborhood who are also getting ready for resettlement or undergoing it? Uh, can, can you explain? Yeah. So in January, at the start of 2021, um, one of my friends actually asked if I wanted to befriend some of um, a few residents at a few blocks of rental flat flats. It was the rental flats are located in Mapati Road, which is near McPherson. And McPherson. Okay. Yeah, McPherson. And That's also on the Circle Line, right? Yes. And they are moving, they, they will be moving out of their current rental flats by next year, 2022. Mm. So I think somehow the topic of relocation. It just feels like it feels fated, right? It keeps like following you around. Yeah, even though I, I'm probably am not going to experience it in the near future. It's just somehow it just comes into my life. Okay, but I didn't know. I don't think I, I went. I accepted his, uh, you know, invitation to befriend these residents because they were relocating. I just wanted to, uh, experience what it feels like to be a befriender. A befriender is that a title? Yes. Oh, really? So this is not, I mean, you're not just using ling- um, normal language. This is like the lingo of the of the community is to befriend. Yes, befriend these residents. Interesting. I haven't heard that before. You haven't? It's no. quite a common term in social service mm. and community work. So, yeah. So um, this, like I said, like this is another layer of experience with a relocation, secondhand experience uh, because I'm not the one relocating, right. Right. but... When I, I now get to read HDB letters sent to the residents, they're like, Dear Mr. Something Something, right? You have to relocate by when, please indicate your option. Where would you like to shift to? And then they give them a list of venues to pick from. And hearing 
um, these residents tell me their feelings about relocating. Mostly the challenges they need help with because that's what we're there for, right? Um, yes, it made me... It, it lessened the sense of disconnect I had with the topic when I first started writing about this in 2019. Yeah. In 2019, my script, when I... I, I really struggled to start. Early 2020. Uh, early yeah. 2020, yes. Yeah. After the, the tour. I really struggled to start with the script because I'm like, I don't understand how to write this without sounding factual and objective. Right, right. Yeah, when I read the script, I'm like... No personal connection to it. Yes, no personal connection. But now that you've personally... Not um, you, you. <laughs> yes, now that I have personally... I've personally spoke with residents who are about to relocate and you can... And these these people, eventually you form some kind of connection with them. They are your friends, right? And yeah. when you see how much they struggle with the process of relocating... Um, you just feel a stronger sense of like, you feel more indignant, you know? I feel you more feel indignant. <laughs> I, I, yes, I yeah. begin to feel more indignant and angry and sad um, about how, how, how this whole relocation process is being carried out and conducted. Yeah, so... What kind of struggles do the people have? What do they tell you they need or what are they... What, what are the primary struggles? Okay, so... One of the primary struggles of relocating is the physical, uh, the physical process of it. How am I going to shift everything here, years of existence, right into a new flat? Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the residents we befriend, she she has a lot of things in her house. Like is she a hoarder? It's uh, not quite that bad. She just has a lot of stuff. I, okay, I don't want to. I don't want to classify, I don't want to label her as right, a hoarder right, because right. of the negative connotations, but we are worried about how she will move. Right. Yes. Understood. And she is a single elderly lady in her sixties mm-hmm. and she is unable to use her phone, which means we cannot contact her. She does not know how to use her phone. Really? We have taught her before. And she doesn't know how she to She has a phone, but she doesn't know how to use it. Yes, she doesn't know how to slide to pick oh, up calls. No. She doesn't know how to unlock the phone. Oh no. It's so dangerous if we have to yeah. call her if anything happens. She can't call us and we can't call her, right? Okay, so, but anyway, so when she, if she has to relocate, she definitely has to relocate to somewhere near because she's already familiar with the neighborhood. It's yeah. going to be very yeah. hard for her to adapt to a new neighborhood. And we are, we are already in touch with the residents to find out uh, their relocation needs, to mm-hmm. assess their relocation needs and to arrange for transportation in advance, so that when they have to move out this year or next year, mm. it's not going to be like a crazy scramble for resources. Where am I going to get people to move? Right. Yeah. So, so she's just one 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 example. One example. Yeah. So there is, there are other residents we befriend um, who may not have as many things, mm-hmm. but who struggle with other aspects of relocation, like picking a suitable neighborhood that they 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 think they'll feel comfortable with. Mm. So. Some neighborhoods, because these are rental flat residents, they are likely going to relocate to another rental flat if mm. they cannot afford mm. to purchase. And different rental uh, flat estates have different stereotypes. Even rental flat residents have, they, they do know like, oh, you know, this area is not particularly safe. Really? The area is not particularly like, yeah, they know. Oh, they, they hear mm. rumors mm. about it and mm. they're like, oh, I don't want to move there. You know, it's not very safe there. I don't like it there. And some of them are in economically precarious situations. They owned areas. They own HDB rent areas. 
What does that mean? Means they can't pay rent. So they owe... They, they owe arrears means... They so, just... So HDB allows them to stay in their, their flat, but oh, they accumulate like arrears. They're supposed to be paying. Yes. And they're just accumulating debt right now. Yes. Because they just, they just don't they have just the don't money. They just don't have any money. Yeah. Wow. And they're how worried they because... Eat? How do they eat? We arrange... If we can, we arrange for uh, meals. How, what's that thing called? Like food aid for mm, them. Food aid. Yeah, okay. or sometimes they, they borrow from their neighbours, they borrow from their siblings. Mm. So it's a... They can't even pay for food, right? I don't expect right. them to pay for rent. Right. Right. So he was really worried that, oh, you know, I have this HDB arrears. What if they don't let me choose my new flat? What if... What if they kick me out because I haven't been paying for years? Yeah. That's a huge concern. It is. And so he was running low on cash. Um, I think somewhere in... Me something and he asked us you know if we can give him any financial aid and he doesn't like to be interviewed for financial aid so we, we did ask him you can approach the social service office because the government has yes and some I'm like, kind of social service I'm like, I think that they can provide qualify. for this you would qualify if you're willing to be interviewed and talk about your situation yes oh, but, but he doesn't want, don't to. want to I think he has had bad experiences and he's he has pride which you know I understand and so when when we finally managed to get him um, financial aid without interview, he used it to pay rent. He used like the bulk of it to pay rent, not even food. And he, he doesn't have enough food. He's eating instant noodles um, every day. When I, when I befriended, befriended him, I came to his house in the evening, right? And he was having his dinner. And then I looked at his plate. It was just instant noodles, no eggs, no veg, no nothing at all. I can learn by visiting a place, by going on a tour, by reading about stories from a book. But to me, I think what I've learned, right, working on this podcast and, and, all, and everything I've experienced so far in this two And doing the volunteering. And too. doing the volunteering is that empathy is... How do you cultivate empathy is that you have to be your presence, you have to be physically present with these people. Like, there's only so much you can get um, secondhand from books and from mm. listening and from people telling you, right? But when you actually see, when you go into their homes and they show you their rooms, how small it is, mm. and how much they really they really would like a flat of their own, that's when you really feel that sense of, like you feel for them, you know. It's a completely different feeling than if I read the book and they told me, oh, the uncle has cried. I'm like, okay, that's really sad. But when I see that person crying and I, and I see him eating only a plate of instant noodles with nothing else, yeah, it's really the sense of empathy is elevated. Yeah. Yeah. So you would would you recommend everyone to become a befriender? Um, I think when I okay. When I when I wanted to become a befriender, right? I, I was thinking, oh, this is something that is a good use of time. I feel like I wanted to go in there with a very problem-solving approach. Mm -hmm. I'm there to solve problems. When I leave the place, the residents should be happier than I was before I came. Which And then my volunteer, uh, sort of my team leader, right? Because mm -hmm. we're in groups. He told me, well, why do you always come in with a problem-oriented lens of things? Sometimes people just want your companionship. They just want to tell you. Like, your presence is enough. Mm -hmm. Because when you come in with a problem-oriented uh how do I say, disposition. Mm -hmm. You feel frustrated when you can't solve the problem. Mm. And you feel discouraged. And then I don't want to come anymore. Why do I go? I go and you, the next week you'll tell me the same problem. Oh, I have arrears. I don't have a job. 
my health is bad and I can't solve any of these. It's beyond me, right? But when you go there and you just go there to care, to listen, to just allow them to see a familiar face every other week. Yeah, it, it takes the pressure off you to have to solve everything. Do you think you still want to solve all the problems? But you're just learning to keep that part of you in the background? I think I'm, I'm, I'm learning to pick the right battles, the battles that I can. We feel like we can win. The episode on Dakota Crescent, or this podcast on Dakota Crescent, meant a lot more. Or it, it felt, when I rewrote the script, when I reread the script, it felt a lot more personal after I started volunteering at Merpati Road. Like, the, the challenges they face, these were things I've observed personally with my own eyes, hurt, you know, hurt personally from the residents. So when I interviewed Jing Zhou and, you know, he told me how they struggle and all, I was like, oh, that's really sad. But there's always that sense of disconnect. I cannot bridge. Mm-hmm. Yes. So only through active volunteering, being present with these residents that finally this sense of disconnect is, is, is lessened. It's not completely dissolved because... I am still not the one personally relocating, but it's definitely much less. Thanks for your work on this episode. I really appreciate it. I know it's a long time coming. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Great. Okay, cool. You are so personally involved in this. Yeah. In so many ways. Yes, but also, I don't know why. Like, sometimes I just feel like I don't really understand their lives well enough, you know? Like, the... like. Our contact is still so transient, even though I know they trust us a lot. And they really open, like who will open a door to a stranger? We're just volunteers, right? But I didn't, like you told me whether I want to go and record them or not, right? Actually, I did think about it. And I think they wouldn't mind being recorded. But at the same time, I'm like, but why? I, how do I say that? Like, I don't want them to feel used, but I also know mm-hmm. I'm not using mm-hmm. them. But it's like, sometimes, why do we even want to know these stories for? You know, some people want to know stories of like, how say it's it's a bit like poverty porn. There's this yeah, term. Yeah, I know this 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 idea. That's true. Poverty porn. Mm. I mean, yeah, I totally understand that, and I also know that some people would say this is the only way you can build empathy. Yeah, building empathy is only possible through people hearing about these stories in the first place, and the only way you can hear about them is by. Ta-da-da, re- recording and sharing them. Yeah. Um, and if not, then they'll be even more invisible than they already are. Yeah. Um, but hearing them is not enough. Yeah, you know. you're right. Over the past few years, Wei Yun has tried to make a difference for those forced to relocate. She has learned that making a difference does not require solving problems. It can be as simple as showing up and being friendly. In other words, being neighborly. Relocation is a complex process that is neither entirely positive nor negative. Change can be promising, a fresh start in a new home. Change can also be destabilizing, feeling displaced and dislocated, struggling to adapt. After all, leaving a place behind often means giving up the routines and rhythms that have become inseparable from who we are. For the former residents of Dakota Crescent, like all who have been forced to move, the challenge is having the strength courage and support to start new routines and make a new place feel like home. This episode has been a labor of love for over two years. 
We first started working on it in 2019 before COVID-19 emerged to disrupt our podcast, our classes, and so many other plans. It's a relief to finally see it finished. I couldn't have done it without my co-producer, Wei Yun, our sound engineer, David Chu, and our project manager, Sean Tan. Special thanks to Yin Zhou of Citizen Adventures, Jing Zhou of the Kasia Resettlement Team, and Yiqing from NUS for talking with us. This episode's shout-out to faithful listeners goes to Joseph Tan and Shimun Ho. I'm also excited to announce that select episodes of Home on the Dot are now playing on the Singapore Airlines in-flight entertainment system. This is completely unexpected, and we are so proud of the work we've done and the ability to share it with people around the world. Next time you're in the sky, consider drifting off to my voice, like my students sometimes do. And if you want to learn more about Dakota Crescent or our podcast, please visit the links on our homepage, tinyurl.com slash home on the dot. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Home on the Dot. Thanks for listening. <laughs>